In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Our beloved deacon, Ken Powell, has been called away to attend to a family emergency. So it's my honor to take his place in the pulpit this morning. We send our thoughts and prayers out to Ken and his family as they cope with this difficult situation of theirs. And I think I would like to nominate the word cope as the word of the year. (laughs) A friend of mine, not a member of this parish, a friend of mine came home from work last week and found her daughter in the living room dead of a drug overdose. A beloved member of our own congregation is planning a funeral for her son, also dead from an overdose. Our good friend, Reverend Phil Ayers, died this week after a sudden onset of respiratory disease. Another member of our congregation just lost his mom yesterday. There are more names on our prayer list than usual. And if that's not enough, you got the mass graves in Ukraine, another COVID resurgence, and oh yeah, on Wednesday I traveled to Minnesota to bury my dad. So yeah, this putrid stench of death is in the air, and we're just trying to cope. How do we hold our faith in times like this? How do we live under this shroud of death? A few years ago, a friend of mine was with his wife in his backyard, where they were in the process of burying their cat. Cat had died, so they're burying it. <laughs> it's not like they're just tired of the cat. It's just no. <laughs> and his wife seemed to slip, and then she fell, and she rolled down this little hill. And my friend rushed to her, and found her laughing, apparently uninjured. And then they realized she couldn't get up. And then they realized she was having a stroke. I found him at the ICU later that day, and he said to me, with a kind of wonder in his face, he said, it just, it just happened like that. It can happen to any of us just like that. And thank God his, his wife made a full recovery, but that look of surprise on his face has just stayed with me for years afterwards. Nowadays, I recognize that look of surprise often. 3,000 years ago, there was this man named Shin Eki Unanini, Shin Eki Unanini, who wrote down onto stone tablets what was for him one of the oldest works of literature from about 1,000 years earlier known to us as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you, no doubt, read the story in high school or college about the demigod king of Uruk, Gilgamesh, who is a great mythical hero of the Sumerian world, a kind of Hercules of his day. And he had a sidekick named Enkidu, or Enkidu, I think that sounds better, Enkidu, 
And together they had a lot of heroic adventures until one day Gilgamesh witnessed his friend Enkidu's death. And then suddenly there was that great surprise. And just like that, the realization of the close, close proximity of death. And this sends Gilgamesh into this panic about his own mortality. Does this mean I'm going to die too? And so he goes off on this epic journey to the eternal city to find the secret to eternal life. And after many heroic deeds and setbacks and adventures, he finds it. He finds this plant that's living at the bottom of the ocean. And he finds a way to dive down and swim down to the bottom of the ocean. And he's told that this plant, when eaten, will bestow eternal life. But he decides to take it home and test it on this old man that he knows to see if it works. And so he's, he's traveling home with it. And while he's sleeping, the crafty serpent sneaks into his campsite and eats the plant. Gilgamesh wakes up to the realization that his entire heroic quest has been for nothing. And this gives birth to one of the great, most poignant speeches in ancient literature. He cries out, he says, Oh, whoa! What do I do now? Where do I go now? Death has devoured my body. Death dwells in my body. Wherever I go, wherever I look, there stands death. Interestingly, these words are remarkably similar to the ones we use in the Episcopal burial service as we lower the body into the ground. We say, in the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor? And so it is, you know, through the history of humankind, this poignant surprise in the face of death, followed by this question we can't help but ask, how can I avoid this? Whether it's the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Gospel of John or Goethe's Faust, the question keeps coming up again and again, how do I fix this problem? Where can I find eternal life? What mountain do I have to climb? What deal do I have to make? What magical food do I have to eat to get out from under this curse? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul so eloquently puts it. Well, John's gospel insists that it has the answer. Gilgamesh might have flubbed it, but yay, through the body of Christ, we have found the magic elixir. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing into eternal life. It's the spring of water gushing up to eternal life that is the final image in the final verses of the last book of the Bible, which we heard this morning. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift.
And now, if you're anything like me, you can't help but ask the obvious question, well, how is that supposed to make me feel better? You know? How does any of that fix what happened in Uvalde? The truth is that nothing's going to fix what happened in Uvalde or Buffalo. Tragedies don't get fixed. No amount of placid cliches preached from a pulpit will take us back to a time before Uvalde. But there are things we can do to help with the healing. The first thing we can do is simply grieve appropriately, feel the sorrow, acknowledge the pain and the hurt. In Christian terms, this means accepting the reality of the cross. Before Uvalde, there was Buffalo. Before Buffalo, there was Sandy Hook. Before that, there was Cain and Abel. You know, it's just with us. Second, when it's time, channel that grief into constructive activity, beginning with prayer. Prayer is a powerfully constructive activity. Pray for the victims. And also, get angry. Dare I say it, get outraged. Outraged by the blowhards who will tell any lie to protect their toxic masculinity and their puerile, totemistic fascination with guns. Contribute to the defeat of politicians who are nothing but shills for the gun manufacturers. But as angry as we might get, the third thing we have to do is to keep our heads about us. Get angry, but don't let yourself get caught up in the fear and the hysteria that sells newspapers and drives Twitter feeds and Facebook likes. Keep your head. According to the best statistics, the chances of any one of us dying in a mass shooting are just under one in a million. One in a million. And yet we're scaring the hell out of our children, saturating them with anxiety and fear that is way out of proportion to the actual threat. If our children don't feel safe, they can't learn, they can't sleep, they can't think straight, they feel alone and under threat, they resort to drugs and other addictive forms of self-soothing. Our children are literally, literally, statistically 10,000 times more likely to die from the predations of fear and anxiety than they are to any mass shootings. So when your child or your grandchild asks you if they'll get shot when they go to school, the answer needs to be simple and clear and immediate. No, honey, you're safe. Your community is safe. Your school is safe. Those things we see on the news or on the Twitter, they're scary, and they seem to happen a lot, but the truth is that those things are very, very rare. And you are safe. Finally, we need to remember who we are and where we come from. 
Almost all of us, I dare say, were raised by parents and grandparents who lived through times far more difficult than this. By the time they reached their 30s, my grandparents had witnessed more tragedy and disaster with a world war and a Great Depression, only to be followed later by another world war. They witnessed more grief and more catastrophe than I am likely to ever witness in several lifetimes. And yet they managed to get through most of their days with a fair dose of humor and wit and compassion. They expressed confidence and care to their children and grandchildren. They created nurturing and comforting homes. They involved their children in community activities, church groups and 4-H and music and sports and camping and charities, activities that helped their children feel seen and loved and useful. And their kids turned out okay. And it's our job to do the same for our kids and grandkids. In fact, it wouldn't hurt to get a little old school on them, really. Quote from Paul's letter to the Romans when he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Where did Paul get such confidence? The truth is, he knew a thing or two about life's afflictions. His knowledge of God was no different from what's available to us. His knowledge of God comes through a devotion to the cause of love in the face of hardship and grief. It's a knowledge of God that comes to those who do not avoid the cross, but approach it as a source of wisdom and then step through it to what lies beyond. This is what Paul called glory, a word we don't hear so often these days. I nominate it as the word for the next year, glory. The truth is that life is suffering and death comes to us all, but as long as we lovers of God can draw breath, fear and death will never have the last word. The light of God is stronger than any darkness the world can throw at us, and it's our job for the sake of our children and for the sake of this world, it is our job to join the cause of Christ, which is nothing but a collective confidence in the cause of love. <clears throat> that is the golden light that shines in every dark place. We need only look past our fears and our dramas and our self-centered concerns to find that golden light 
that shines through our loved ones and greets us in the morning light. We who follow this path of glory need never be afraid. Amen.